family. Uh, it's an honor to be here this morning to have an opportunity to preach uh, for you guys here in our worship series. <clears throat> and um, our sermon this morning is going to be from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And the words will be up on the screen. And I will uh, read those for us here. Second Peter chapter 1 writes, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire." For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, before we begin, I'd ask you to pray with me. Lord, I thank you for this day, for this opportunity. God, I thank you for just the chance to be here this morning. Uh, to look at your word, to open your word, uh, to speak about it. And Lord, I pray that uh, as we are here in this time, God, I pray that our hearts would be turned to worship. As we reflect on the songs that we've just sung and as we look at your word here this morning, I pray that this would truly be a time where our hearts worship and praise and honor you. So God, I pray now as, as I preach that your spirit would attend your word and I pray that you would, uh, Lord, just protect me from saying anything I should not say. And Lord, I pray that I would only say things that I ought to. And Lord, I pray that this would truly be a help to all those who hear it today. So God, now as we come to this time, I pray that this, this hour together that we have here would be honoring to you, would be pleasing to you. And Lord, again, I just pray that your spirit would speak this morning and that anything I would say that would get in the way, Lord, just get it out of my mind and off my tongue. Lord, I pray that this time would be a help to us as believers and an encouragement for all of us. And God, I pray that it would honor and praise your name. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you've ever gotten the opportunity to watch an expert 
in their field of work and just watch them work. Just watch somebody who's really skilled and really talented do what they do. It's truly an impressive sight. When you get somebody who's an expert, they've studied this, they've done this for a career, they're a veteran, it can be truly, truly uh, just inspiring to watch. Um, we see this in athletic competition. Why are, why are professional sports leagues, why do they exist? Why are they there? Why do we enjoy watching them? Because we're watching the most skilled. We're watching the experts, the best of the best, perform this task. And watching them put it all together is an awesome awesome sight. And sometimes we get reminded that we're not experts. A couple of months ago, I had a ceiling fan that was not working. It's a ceiling fan with a lighting fixture, and I was going to replace it. I've done ceiling fans and lighting fixtures before. It's not a super complicated task. I thought I can do this hour, maybe two if I take my time. I'm not in any kind of rush. It's a, it's a simple thing to do. And so I got the new one, I took the old one down, and I expected to see the black wire, the white wire, and the ground. That's standard and straightforward, that's what I've seen in all the ones I've done before. And when I pull the old fan off, I see not that, but I see two black wires and two white wires, a red one and two grounds. And it was a stark reminder in an instant, I am in over my head. I am not an electrician, I'm not an expert, I am not the guy who does this for a living, and I needed some help. And so it took several hours that night and a lot of Google searching and then several hours the next day after I finally found a diagram of what I was supposed to do to actually get it right. I was, that's not my area of expertise. That's not what I do all the time. And the principal difference between me, a do-it-yourselfer at home who's done this meh, a time or two, and an electrician who does this all the time is the fact that the electrician does this all the time. He's had training, he's had practice. This is his literal way of life. Going back to the analogy of the athletes. Athletes have a season and an off season, but they can't live like me during the off season. They can't eat what I eat and exercise as little as I exercise during the off season. If they want to maintain their skill and their craft in the sport that they play, they have to stay in shape even in the off season. So their physical fitness is, for them, a way of life. For a professional, an expert at a trade, I mean, if you talk to them even just casually, the thing that they do all the time is going to bleed into just a casual daily conversation because it's what they are. It's what they do. And it's just become a way of life for them. So last week... Chris, Pastor Chris preached and we talked about what it is, why it's important for us to come together and worship as a congregation, as a body, why Sunday mornings are important. And next week, Pastor Brian's going to preach and he's talking about worshiping in your home, like with your family. And so this week, it's not about making us as expert worshipers, but it is making us worshipers as a way of life during our lives. How do we worship God, and how, uh, in what ways is worship a way of life? How do we worship between the Sundays, so to speak? <clears throat> and that's kind of what we're going to get at here in Second Peter. So the first point we have, um, I have three points today. As I was going over this, there's virtually no chance we're getting to point three, just being honest. Unless you want to stay here till two, we're probably not going to get to point three. But point one is worship is a life of godliness through knowledge. 
Worship is a life of godliness through knowledge. So Peter starts off this letter, verses 1 and 2, the same way that most epistles begin. He introduces himself, kind of talks to his audience, and um, just says hi, basically, in the way that they had said hi in letters in those days. So there's just a couple things I want to point out in these first few verses. He says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter, who declares himself an apostle, tells all of his readers that they've obtained a salvation, a faith of equal standing with him. Now, for us, we, we live in a culture and a society built on equality. In any place we see it, that's where you hear the loudest people making some noise about this is an issue of inequality, and they're pushing for that because equality is a big thing for us. For Peter, in his day, this is a big deal because Peter was an apostle, and the Gentiles coming into the Christian faith was revolutionary. There's like the book of Acts is largely about that kind of thing happening. It got almost an entire Bible book. The idea that the gospel would then go out to Gentiles. So when Peter writes this and says, this is to all of you who have a faith on equal standing with us. For him, that's revolutionary. It's also very encouraging because there used to be such a stark divide between the Jewish faith and the Gentiles who were outsiders. And now Peter is saying everyone's in this same faith. Whether you're an apostle or a Gentile who's just trusted, all of us have a faith of equal standing. It's going to be important for Peter because as he's writing this book, um, chapters 2 and 3 is largely about how do you deal with false teaching. And so he's tying the faith that these Christians have into the faith of the apostles And that's going to be a big way that he refutes false teaching. If it's not a part of the apostolic faith that you've heard from us, that's one way that you know it's false. And for us this morning, part of why that's important is we know that as believers, we're all equal. We're all on a level playing field. The the blessings of salvation that come to believers come to all of us. And that also means that, to a degree, the expectations for us are going to be the same. Now, everyone's going to have different results. We all have different, we're all at different life stages. We're in different phases of life. Some of us have different sizes of family. You work in different vocations, uh, different ages and everything. We're, We're different people. We have different gifts, different abilities, different settings that we live in. So the results are going to look different, but the principles by which we are called to live are going to be the same for all of us. As believers, we live according to the same principles. And that's what Peter's getting at when he says everyone has a faith of equal standing there. He notes specifically in verse 2, in all of the, so in all the epistles in the New Testament pretty much, the writer, a lot of them are Paul because he just wrote a lot of them, says grace and peace to you through the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it's almost like he's, it's such a, a common greeting, it almost feels like he's saying Grace and peace, here, catch. And then he writes the rest of his letter because it was just their way of saying hi. But Peter has a slight variation on that. And so when we look at this and we see, okay, this is the customary greeting, but then there's a difference to it, that's something we should pay attention to. So whenever you're reading Scripture, if you see a pattern and then something's different, think, why is this different? Why? That's something that should stick out to you. So why does Peter 
do this slightly differently. In verse 2, he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So he's giving more than just the standard greeting. He's telling us this is how you're going to live your life. Grace and peace are going to be multiplied to you in your life through the knowledge of God, through the knowledge of Jesus our Lord. So the basis, the very starting point, the foundation for how we as Christians are going to live has to start with knowing God. And more than just knowing facts about him, he's speaking of this in the relational sense. He's talking about, do you know the Lord? Not just do you know about him, not do you know who he is. Do you know Jesus? If you want to worship God, if you want to worship Jesus, that starts with a relationship. You want to figure out how do we worship God as a way of life? How do we worship Jesus between Sundays? The first step is you have to have a relationship with him. Because nothing, nothing can start, nothing will be right until we get that part right. And lastly here in these first couple of verses, he refers to Jesus our Lord. At the end of verse 1, he says, uh, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is one of the places in the New Testament where Jesus is specifically called God. We, we know that from other places, and we can put that together through the Gospels and um, all throughout the New Testament, but this is one of the few places in the New Testament where it's just explicitly stated, God and Savior, who is Jesus Christ. So this is a very important verse for that, if nothing else, but he also, he, he, he states that twice, God and Savior Jesus Christ and the knowledge of God and the knowledge of Jesus our Lord. As we get through verses 5 through 9, Peter's going to have some hard, kind of heavy commands for us. Peter's going to have some heavy challenges for us to look through and to evaluate our lives by. So before we get to that, it's important to recognize who is doing this, who is, who is calling us to this, what is the purpose of this. All of everything we do as Christians, as believers, is rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. All of our worship has to start there. It has to start with your relationship with that God, with Jesus Christ. And so he points it out because Jesus is the Lord. He is the Lord of the universe. So we're going to get to some heavy, weighty challenges, but we have to start by recognizing that Jesus is truly the worthy master who deserves everything we can give. Thinking of, uh, of Romans 1, Paul says or, that we should be we should give ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is our spiritual worship. Our lives are to be sacrifices of worship to God. So worship is not just something that happens here on Sunday morning when we all come together. Worship has to happen between the Sundays. Worship has to happen in our own individual personal lives. And that starts by recognizing who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and having that relationship with him. And then we get into verses 3 and 4, and these are some uh, dense verses. There's five propositional statements here that he gives us, and they are full to the brim with theological truth. And this is kind of how Peter writes his letters. First Peter, 
he gives, he gives his greeting, and in the first couple of paragraphs of 1 Peter, he's talking all about the inheritance that the Christians are going to receive in the future. He says there's a salvation that is going to come to its fruition, coming to its fulfillment in the future. There's an inheritance that is yours as believers. And then the rest of 1 Peter is in this life, you're going to suffer so here's how you deal with that. So he throws out the inheritance that they're going to have in the future and says, you keep your mind on this. You understand this. And if you rightly understand this, it's going to help you as you endure all of what's going to happen to you in this life, which he promised them was going to be suffering. And he does a similar thing here. He's starting off in these first 11 verses with some rich, densely packed theological truths about the gospel, about living the Christian life, and then in the rest of the, the letter, he's talking about how you deal with false teachers. So he starts off with just a, a theological bomb. It's just packed to the brim with loads and loads of rich theological truths, and then he gives you, okay, here in your life is how you're going to handle this. And so for us this morning, we're primarily just looking at this theological bomb that's just full to the brim. And so, when we get to three and four, he starts off and it's heavy there. So, first three, that first phrase, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's an amazing statement. That's an amazing statement now. Think about it, what it was back then. What, what that means, God, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. First of all, that means that we as believers lack no necessary thing for godliness. We as believers lack no necessary thing to live a life of godliness, to grow in Christian maturity. We lack no necessary thing because his divine power has given us all of it. That's an amazing statement. And when Peter's writing this, the New Testament hasn't even been finished yet. Think of that. Like the Bible hasn't even been published for the people who he's writing this to. They haven't, like they're reading this as a letter. There's half of this letter that they haven't even gotten to yet. But he says, even now, God's divine power has given you everything you need for life and godliness. There is nothing as a believer that is lacking for you to have a relationship with God that is growing and full of worship. James 4, 8 says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you, or draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Uh, my, uh, one of my college professors said that verse basically means you can be as close to God as you want to be. Because if you're going towards him, he's coming towards you. You can be as close to God as you want to be. And that's been true up until this point as well. So that kind of means you are as close to God as you want to be. Because if you've been drawing near to him, then he's been drawing near to you. So if God feels distant, it's not because he's turned around and walking away. It's because we are not taking advantage of the fact that he's given us what we need for life and godliness. He has provided all of that through his divine power. So as believers, we lack no necessary thing for life and godliness. The second truth that we get from just that, that phrase is that we cannot obey God apart from his power. 
We cannot obey God without his power, apart from his power. His divine power gives us everything we need, which means his divine power is the thing that gives us everything we need. So everything we need comes from him. Not only has he given us all of it, he's the only one who's giving it. So we could not ever obey God on our own. Left to our own devices, we would be dead in sin forever. Never in any way pleasing God. We would not have any way to live in godliness apart from his power. Even unbelievers, you see unbelievers doing good things, being nice, showing uh, philanthropy in general, even that is a mark of God's common grace. Even that is God's restraint by helping the entire world not be as evil as it could be. So even when unbelievers do something nice, even that is because of God's restraint on this planet. We cannot, cannot obey God without his power, apart from him, because his divine power is the means by which we get all the things that pertain to life and godliness. And again, in the end of verse 3, he says, this comes through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So knowledge is the means by which grace and peace are multiplied to us in our lives, and knowledge is the means by which we are gaining the power that gives us what we need to pertain to life and godliness. So it is knowledge of God that is driving our worship. We cannot worship in ignorance. We cannot worship things that we don't know. We cannot worship something that we've never experienced, something we have no relationship with. Our worship has to come from a true sense of knowledge, from a true relationship with God. And he's called us to his own glory and excellence. So he's doing these things not for us. He's doing this for his own glory, for his excellence. So that's why when God is providing us these gifts, when God is giving us these things, he's doing it to build worship up in us. He's doing that to make worshipers of us. And that's how we worship. It has to come in part through knowledge of God. Verse 4, he says, by which, that's his glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. He has given us what the Bible calls here great and very precious promises. And it's through these promises that we get to partake in the divine nature. It's through these promises that we escape the corruption of this world through its desires. The promises of God that he's talking about here are the promises of salvation. It is the promises that God has made throughout the Old Testament to save Israel, to save his people. These promises have been given to us. I talked about 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter 1, he talks about this inheritance that's coming. And then what's really interesting is after he explains it and encourages the people by saying, this is your inheritance that you're awaiting, now endure the suffering. 
He, he describes this inheritance, and then he says, this is the thing that the prophets, when they were writing, they searched diligently to see what were the circumstances, what was the time going to be when God brought this salvation to being. The prophets of old, the Old Testament prophets, who were writing Scripture, were trying to figure out, when does this happen? How does this happen? What are the circumstances? And it says, God revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. The promises that the prophets were writing about, they didn't see them come to fruition. Peter's audience did. These promises that the Old Testament prophets were prophesying about, they didn't fully understand it. But Peter says God let them know, I don't know how and what that looked like, but God let them know that they were not serving themselves but you. These prophets were making promises for the sake of the people who would come in afterward as recipients of those promises. And then Peter closes with one of the weirdest sentences I think I see in Scripture where he says, it's these things into which the angels long to look. Think of that. The angels, some of whom are like in the presence of God, look at the promises of God's salvation for his people, and Peter says the angels long to look into this. The angels, some translations say, long to catch a glimpse of this. The promises that have been made to us, the promises fulfilled in Christ, the salvation given to us, the very angels desire to see what is that all about. The prophets who wrote it didn't understand it. They wanted to know more about it. And he says it wasn't for them, it was for us. These are the promises that God has given to us. These are the precious and very great promises that God has given to us. These things ought to inspire worship in our hearts. The promises that God has given us. It says, so that through them, through those promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Um, in chapter 2, he spends a lot of time talking about the false teachers who are coming around, and as is often the case, he's talking about how they teach false doctrine, and as a result, they live false lives. Basically, these are people who pretend to tell you the truth. These are people who pretend to speak for God, but in reality, they're hypocrites, and you can tell it by their lives. He describes them as... Um, people who indulge in the lust of defiling passion, those who despise authority, um, those who um, are like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, and blasphemers. So he describes these false teachers as people who are basically um, uh, controlled by their sinful desires. They're like animals, he says. They just live off instinct. So it's kind of an if, if it feels good, do it sort of thing. It's like, well, that's just who I am. That's what he's describing. And he's saying that these promises of salvation that God has given to us, that's how you are saved from living a life like that. It is the promises of God that save you from living a life bound and controlled by the desires of your flesh, the sinful desires that we have. <clears throat> His promises make us more like him. 
He promises to make us more like him. And becoming more and more like God, having our character changed into the character of God to where we reflect him more and more and more is one of the best promises he gives us. We get God. He gives himself to us. And that's one of the greatest promises we could ever get. But he doesn't just zap godliness down to us like a lightning bolt. There's, there's work that we have to do to this. And this is where he comes in verse 5. And our point, second point this morning, worship is a life of virtue through work. Worship is a life of virtue through work. Now, you may initially hear that and, like, put the guards up and, like, whoa, 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 whoa. The gospel says, the gospel by grace, it's not by works. And you're right, you're right. The gospel does not come through our works. The gospel comes through grace. But we tend to think that that means we don't have anything to do, and that's not the case. The gospel is not something that we can earn but it is certainly something that entails work. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, it is by the grace of God that I am what I am. All grace. It says, therefore, or but, I labored more than everyone else. So he's saying, in the grace of God, because of my salvation, I work. In Philippians 2, he says, um, uh, it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his, or actually that's the second part. Uh, he says, um, uh, as now as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but also now that I'm absent, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Like, exercise your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So the gospel comes through grace, and work is the result of that. So we're not earning our salvation, but we are working with our salvation. We are doing stuff. And he says that in verse 5. He says, for this very reason, that's everything in the verses before, listen to the language. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. This is not, not a lazy man's game. This is not for those who just want to pray a prayer and then go on living their lives the same way they always have. That's not the Christian faith. The gospel comes to us through God's grace, but it will necessarily inspire work in us. The gospel will, and we're told to do so. And here he lists eight virtues um, or characteristics, character qualities that should be characterizing the lives of believers. Um, and he, he, he does it in a method that they call a staircase, and he does it one at a time. It says, add to your faith, virtue, virtue, knowledge, and so on. I don't think, and there are some commentators who agree with me, he's not doing this in a logical order. You don't have to get faith before you get virtue, and you have to have virtue before you get knowledge, and you have to get knowledge before you have any self-control. I don't think that's how that works. I think he's more along the lines of, like, if you're loading up a donkey for a journey, and, or if you're, you're going on vacation with your family and you're loading up the minivan and you've got a kid who's got a suitcase there and it's empty and he's just looking at you wide-eyed like, what do I need? Well, here, need some clothes. You're going to need some pajamas. You're going to need your toothbrush. You're going to need some soap and a, a towel and a rag and you're going to need your swimsuit. All of these things, just he's, he's loading it up like a pack mule. Take this and take some of this and take some of this. Take some virtue. Take some self-control. Take some brotherly 
uh, brotherly affection. Take your godliness. Load up because you're going on a journey. And that's what he's talking about. He says, in this world, you're going to run into people who are teaching false doctrine and they're living in a way that is completely immoral. So if you want to be prepared for that journey, you want to go out into the world where that's going on, you got to be prepared. And so you've got to do that by building up your Christian character. And you're adding to your faith, which I think that's first on purpose. You're adding to your faith, that which is what gets us into the family of God, so to speak, all of these virtues. And I don't want to take time on all of them individually because, again, we'd be here forever. But I do want to point out, again, he talks about knowledge, um, he talks about self-control. Again, the false teachers living by instinct, living by animals, living like animals. We don't really value self-control in our culture today. We, we, we think any kind of self-restraint is a sign of weakness. Anytime you can't get what's yours, anytime you cannot get what you want, uh, it's just because you're not good enough. And we deride anyone who shows any kind of self-control. But this is in contrast to what the false teachers are doing. Um, and all of these virtues, in reality, are in contrast to what the world is telling us to value today. Like if you, if you did a survey and said, what are character qualities that you value in people, they would come up with a lot of the things that sound similar. But unconsciously, look at what gets praised on TV. Look at what people listen to. Let's look at who people are listening to as advisors. Look at who gets honored and venerated in society. That's unconscious stuff, and that's where it matters. If you just Google a list of desirable character traits, you're going to get a lot of the same stuff that's here because people are forced to think about it and answer those questions. So where does the rubber really meet the road? Where is all this stuff going to really show? When is this stuff going to really shine? In the unconscious way you live your life, in the day-to-day how do you respond when your spouse or your children don't meet your expectations? Do you have self-control? Do you live with godliness? Do you have virtue in your life? Is that what controls the way you respond when things don't go your way? Is that how you live in the, in the moment, in the day-to-day? Because it's, it's how you live in the moment. It's how you live in the day-to-day. The unconscious things you don't have to think through that are going to be shaped by the things that you do think through. What you feed yourself is going to start to ooze out in other areas. Like I talked about, like if you meet somebody who's an electrician or you meet somebody who's a lawyer and you're talking to them, that, that, the manner in which they speak is going to reflect that. The things that they talk about, the illustrations that they use when they're trying to convey a point, that sort of stuff is going to show itself just in the day-to-day when you're talking to these people. In the same way for us as believers, if you are not filling your head with the knowledge of Jesus, if you're not filling your head with the knowledge of God and living a life purposefully in worship to God, that's going to show itself in the moment. That's going to show itself in your relationships with your friends, your family, your coworkers. You have to start with the knowledge and thinking these things through, and as that fills in your mind, it's going to ooze out all over everywhere else. Like if you eat a lot of garlic, you can kind of smell it. It comes through your pores. You should have so much Bible in you that it just 
flows out. Like you don't even recognize you're speaking in scriptural language. You don't even realize that your thinking starts to change and starts to take shape and you're thinking the way God thinks because scripture is filling your mind. And that's how you live your life unconsciously. Whatever you fill your mind with, that's going to be the stuff that's coming out. And that's what he's getting at here. We as believers need to have these biblical traits. We need to have steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection and love, virtue. These things need to characterize what comes into our minds to fill our lives because that's how we ought to be living. In verse, after the list, so he says, take all these things. In verse 8, he says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it is possible for us to be unfruitful, for us to be ineffective even with knowledge. If knowledge is where it stops and you don't ever put it into practice, then we'll be ineffective, we'll be unfruitful, Peter says, in our lives. So we can't just take facts and put them into our brain. It's got to be more than just that. That's where the relational aspect of living with Christ, worshiping Christ comes in. That's why I think it's really, it's interesting that when he's talking about these things in verses 5 through 7, he's talking about character qualities. He's not talking about things to do. We can get very bogged down and burdened with law. The letter kills, but it's the spirit that gives life. We often want to have our lives together. Um, we know we ought to be hospitable, but if the house is a mess, we're maybe afraid to invite friends over and things like that. We want, to, we want to have that social media selfie life. We want to have that picture of the whole family on vacation, everyone smiling in front of the attraction. Look at how great this was. We're loving this trip. We don't show a video of us trying to wrangle the kids before we got to that picture. We want life to be that one snap moment picture. We want everything to be like that. And that's what we aspire to be like. That's what we strive for. We want to have a life that feels all put together because we think we know what's good and right and efficient. And we know how we want things to be because if everything stays in order, then I can go do what I want to do and I can live the way I want to live. As long as all these things stay together. But that's not life. Life is chaos. Life is madness sometimes. Life is telling the one kid to stop slapping the other kid 45 times because he's just not listening. He's just not getting it. Stop pulling on your sister's hair. Don't eat that. Put that back down. It's, that's life. That's life. And we have to recognize that that's when God is at work. When we think things are flipped upside down, that's when God is at work. Think about the life of Joseph. If we were writing a story, okay, you have a family, they're going to grow into a nation, and they're going to they're grow and they're going to take over this geographical land, and they're going to live there. Do you write the story with Joseph going to Egypt, getting accused of sexual assault falsely, thrown in jail, forgotten about for years... So that the famine comes into the land and he can somehow use all that to to save his people? No. Joseph's life was thrown into complete chaos. 
But God used that. God worked through that to save his people. Think about how the gospel spread in the, in the first century. Paul had visions of where to go. Paul had desires that he wanted to, I wanted to go this direction, but the Lord shut a door and I had a vision that sent me to Macedonia. Paul wrote some of his letters from prison. Paul, think of that. Paul is what? He's basically known as the greatest missionary we know, the greatest missionary we've ever seen or heard of or anything. He's one of the apostles. He wrote 13 books of the New Testament. There's 27 books. He wrote 13 of them. He wrote almost half of the books in the New Testament. So you'd think that guy who is spreading the gospel needs to have the carpet rolled out for him. We need to make the way clear because he is getting it done. And what happens? From town to town he goes to. He gets beaten. He gets thrown in jail. He gets kicked out of town. He gets shipwrecked. He gets thrown into prison. He's the greatest missionary ever. Would you make the choice to put that guy in jail so he's stuck in one spot? No, of course not. But it's in doing that that he said the word of God has been made manifest throughout the Praetorian Guard. He's there in prison and he says, now everybody who's around me, they're hearing the gospel. God used what seemed to flip the way we would want things to be completely upside down. And God used that to drive character, to build his church, to, to spread the gospel. We often think, well, this is what I would like my life to be. And when that gets flipped up on its head, that's when worship happens. That's when worship becomes real. Because things are not the way you want them to be. And we have to recognize this is God at work in my life. If we lack God's qualities, then we will be ineffective and unfruitful in our knowledge. In verse 9, and we're going to bring this to a close because I, I told you we weren't going to get to three. Verse 9, he says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. I can think of the story in Luke 7 where Jesus is in the home of, I think it's Simon the Pharisee, and they're laying at the table, and the woman breaks in. She's crying, and she uses her tears and her hair to wash Jesus' feet. And the Pharisee says, essentially, Jesus, I'm not trying to tell you how to live your life, but if you knew who that woman was, you wouldn't want her to touch you because she's a sinner. And Jesus gives the story, and he says, if you had, if a man has two servants, one guy owes 10 bucks and one guy owes $1,000. And one day he calls them both in and says, both of you, your debt is forgiven. Who's going to be more grateful? So this is obviously the guy who was, had a bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus says, yeah, whoever has been forgiven much loves much. That's what drives our worship. He says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed of his former sins. We sang earlier today, we stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. If you are a believer, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been forgiven. All of your sin has been forgiven. That's what drives our worship. 
That's what drives it as believers. If it's not coming from a heart filled with love, then it's just law. If we're trying to change the way we live apart from recognizing who we are in Christ, who Christ is and what he's done, then we're just trying harder. And when you try hard, you're going to get discouraged and you're going to fail and you're going to fall back. And that's what he talks about with these false teachers. He says, though they knew the truth, they left it and they ended up worse than they were when they began. Jesus accuses the Pharisees of that as well in the way that they tried to teach people. He says, you make them twice the servant of hell that they were beforehand. Our worship, day to day, has to be motivated by a love for Christ. So when you're at home, when you're dealing with the kids, when you're dealing with the family, when you're at work, when you're dealing with an unfair boss, the decisions that you make should reflect these qualities. Not because if you do these magical steps, then you're doing it right. If you can force it by sheer will, no. If you live your life focusing on the fact that you are a forgiven sinner and God gave his son for you and your sins are forgiven and your heart overflows with love, these things will happen. In John 14, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And we often take that like, on the heavy imperative, like the weight of it. Like, oh man, if I, I want to say I love God, I got to make sure I'm doing all the stuff right. No, read it the way Jesus said it. If you love him, you'll keep his commandments. If your heart is full of love for God, then all the commandments are going to fall into place. That's what happens when the rich young ruler asks Jesus, which commandment is the greatest? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. On this hangs all the law and the prophets. If you truly and properly love the Lord, focusing on the forgiveness he's offered you, and you truly love your neighbor, these things are going to fall into place. Point three, and we're, we're done. Worship is a life of confidence through practice. The last couple of verses, he says, use this to make your calling and election sure. Write theology will end in worship. That's why if you read Paul's letters, he'll give this lengthy sometimes theological explanation of a truth, and he ends that with a doxology. He ends that by praising God's name. So right worship will, or right knowledge and theology will produce godly worship. And... Um, Point three was supposed to lead into the conclusion, and that's not going to flow right now. So I'm just going to end that. So our good theology is going to produce worship. And that's why we end our services with a song and with a benediction. We've, we've heard the instruction from the word, so now we're going to sing about it. And that's what we're going to do here right now. So I'm going to pray as the band comes up, and we will put this into practice, worshiping as we think about the things that God has done for us. Lord, I thank you for this time together. God, I thank you for your help this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. And Lord, I pray for each of us now. God, I know um, uh, in so many ways it's clear to see um, how preparation is insufficient and how uh, for all my best efforts, uh, Lord, you sometimes have different plans for how things are going to go. So Lord, I thank you for your, I thank you for your, your work. I thank you for your spirit attending your word in this time. Lord, I pray for us that we would think, we would meditate on the truth, knowing that we are forgiven, 
knowing that you as the God of heaven and earth have saved us. And Lord, those who have been forgiven much, love much. So God, I pray that we would focus on the forgiveness that you've given to us. I pray that we would never forget what you've done for us. And God, I pray that our hearts would properly be tuned to worship as we meditate on the truths of what you've done for us and how you have saved us. So Lord, as we sing now, I pray that uh, our offering of praise would be acceptable to you this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.